Amen to not guilty, huh? Wow. Turn your Bibles, if you would, or you can follow along. We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5. Lord willing, over the next um, few months, I'll be here. Obviously, I'm here today. And uh, next month and the month after, we're going to be looking at this passage of Scripture in Matthew 5, known as the Beatitudes. I want to ask you this question this morning before we start. How is your attitude this morning? How's your attitude been this week? Maybe I should ask somebody who knows you really well the answer to that question. (laughs) And I wonder what the forecast is for how your attitude is going to be this coming week. There's a uh, story about just how people deal with the issue of attitudes, and especially the subject of the attitudes toward aging. I turned 50 back in March, so that was something to have to deal with this year and how to deal with that big 5-0, not 6-0, 5-0, just in case you hear all right. <laughs> the attitude towards aging, how do you handle it? Someone has said, I'm in shape. Round's a shape. <laughs> you have to stay in shape. My grandma started walking five miles a day when she was 60. She's 97 today and we don't know where she is. Maybe you can relate to this on your attitude toward aging. Funny, I don't remember being absent-minded. <laughs> or I always wanted to be somebody, but I should have been more specific. I finally got my head together, but now my body is falling apart. Someone has said, you know, and just thinking about how we need to condense this awesome passage of Scripture that Jesus talked about, actually called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's chapters 5 Uh, 6 and 7, that the secret of a good sermon is to have a good beginning and a good ending and having the two as close together as possible. (laughs) And so today what we're going to do is we're going to condense what the Lord Jesus was saying and we're going to pick it all up over the next couple of months. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We'll cover the next several over the next few months, as I said, but let's skip down to verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, How can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does any light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on the lampstand it gives light to all those who are in the house. Verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Matthew chapter 5 in this section called the Beatitudes, what Jesus wants us to be, there's nine of these attitudes to cover. And really, as we were thinking about it, and just on the, even on the subject of, of how we approached last week, how we're thinking today, how we're going to be thinking next week, the whole issue of attitudes 
is really important, isn't it? I've been thinking a lot about this issue with a lot of conviction, I might say, about the subject of attitudes over the last several months. And what's amazing about the Lord's message here is it is spoken with authority. It's very plain if you were to read through his whole Sermon on the Mount message. And like any, and he's the best person who speaks the word of God, he tells the objective at the beginning. He wants his followers, and if you're familiar with all of the Beatitudes, he wants his followers to experience real blessedness. In other words, real happiness, real joy, real gladness. And ultimately, as he talks about as well, even reward. And so he covers that. And what he says in this passage of Scripture is happy people are those that are poor in spirit. They're the mourners. And as we'll see next month and in September, the the meek, the hungry, the thirsty, the merciful, even the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and happy are those even who are the persecuted. And you start to think about that and you say, wait a second, hold on. I'm not so sure I want that kind of happiness in my life. In other words, it kind of sounds like really what you're talking about is misery as opposed to happiness when you describe all of those things. The world says, if you like, happiness is the man or the woman who gets whatever he wants, when he wants it, where he wants it, and how he wants it. We've probably heard it or we've thought it ourselves. Happiness is doing your own thing. Happiness is all about acquiring. It's being rich. It's being famous and popular. And yet you notice here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus teaches something very, very different to what the popular thinking was. And he goes on to reveal over these next three chapters what kind of lifestyle produces the kind of happiness that he really wants his followers to have. The kind of attitudes that he wants us to have. And I read it from chapter 5, verse 13 and 14 and 15 as well and 16. The kind of attitude that reflects to a watching world how we behave, how we think, what's coming from our heart by the way that we speak and how how we act. We have a saying, uh, a little sticker that's uh, like a plaque at my job at the PD that says, everyone brings, brings joy to the office. Some when they enter. Others when they leave. And you think about it. Which are you? When you're at the office, when you're at home, when you're at school, or wherever else you are, do you bring joy when you're present, your company? Or are people actually kind of glad when you leave? I know my dog is always happy to see me. I think he's only... Sad to see me leave when I tell him it's time to get out of the house and go out in the backyard for the rest of the day, just like he did a little while ago. And you know, this whole area of how we behave before watching world, which is what Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, is so incredibly important. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 and 16. We've been listening to this myself for the last few weeks where I fellowship and the the brother teaching has been focusing on this passage of scripture. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved 
and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And then Paul goes on to say, and who is adequate for these things? My wife, I think I may have mentioned this before, she, she has, like I'm sure a number of you ladies and some of you men have cologne, but she loves perfume. And there's some, some perfumes that immediately when people smell that perfume, they know that Cindy's in the area. And what I find interesting, and I don't know if anybody else does this, but when she applies perfume, and I don't know if any other ladies you do this, I watch her, she'll squirt, and she'll walk into it, squirt, and walk back into it. It covers from head to toe that way, and the whole fragrance takes basically from her head to her toe. Now, I don't know how you men put on your clone. I don't do that. It's just a quick squirt, squirt, you know, and out the door. But that fragrance is an awesome thing. And as Christians today, we have the fragrance of Christ in us. It's not something that we produced in and of ourselves. You can't pour this fragrance on. It's because Jesus is in our lives if we know him. And therefore, we are a fragrance. We're a fragrance to those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. But what is that odor that they're smelling? Are they getting a whiff of the beauty of Jesus Christ in our lives when we're around? Are they picking up on that? The Pharisees, of course, they weren't that aroma. And so the Lord Jesus in chapter 5, when he gives this profound message, he's saying to them, now this is how I want kingdom citizens to live. This is how I want my followers to behave. And specifically, it comes in the area of attitude, because out of attitude and out of the heart, everything else follows, doesn't it? At work this couple of days ago, we were... I was in lineup and we were putting out a broadcast and they, we do debriefings. If you ever watch Hill Street Blues, Blues, they have that lineup kind of time and there's a 30-minute lineup. And there was a lineup of a, of a man who had beaten up um, his girlfriend of eight years. And description, blah, blah, and what he you know, looked like. But what was sad was the vehicle that he left in, which obviously I won't go into details except to say this. On the back of the vehicle he left in had a Jesus sticker. And I remember I was watching, even though for all intents and purposes, it could have been the victim's car. But the fact is, the immediate thing I watched with among about the five officers in the lineup was is when they saw the Jesus sticker on the car, they just started to shake their head. And I know what they were thinking. They were thinking hypocrite. That's what they were thinking. Now, it may have been completely not fair, but that association with the attitude of how that guy behaved toward a woman, there was a huge contradiction and how he ought to behave. But then you contrast that to something that was really encouraging, because back in May, we also had another daughter married. So there's a wedding in November for this couple here, and we had another wedding in May with two more to go. Hopefully not this year, but (laughs) 2011, 2012, 2013. And their wedding was held through a friend who was very gracious at the Diablo Country Club off of Diablo Road. And I don't know if you've ever been there, and I don't know if anybody golfs there, but this is, this is quite a place. I hadn't been there until a week before the wedding because of a number of other things that have been going on in my life from January to May, which I'll mention briefly shortly. But when I saw this place, I was like, wow, this is pretty amazing. The, a lot of the folk that attend probably, and again, I'm just saying some, probably have this attitude of, you know, 
can I have this? Give me this to the staff. And at the wedding, there was about 150 folks present. The lady who was responsible for the whole wedding planners after it was over called my daughter during the week, and she said, you know, the way that you folks were and the way that the guests were was such an encouragement to us that we want to invite you back anytime you want. You can come back. I'm hoping hoping that's not anytime real soon unless there's a significant discount on what's going on there. But the point was she noticed something different in the way that we were behaving, the wedding party, and even a lot of the guests who were there. And I'll tell you, it wasn't anything of ourselves. It was the fragrance of Christ that they saw. And so when you contrast the two, you think, well, what do I want to be? And it all had to do with attitude. So that's the backdrop to this passage when we think about why would Jesus spend so much time on these uh, points about what it is to be blessed and happy. And the first one that we're going to cover for the time we have is the attitude number one. And we're just going to do two today. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Bottom line, folks, if we, if we know the Lord Jesus, then we need, and the Lord Jesus wants us to have, an attitude of humility. What he means in the Greek when he says poor is it means poor in this world's goods. That word poor. It means a beggar. Desperately ashamed even to allow his identity to be known kind of poor. It's not just, I'm kind of poor. It's begging poor. That word poor. Poor in spirit, when you take the word spirit, what he's saying is it's really the exact opposite of pride and any sense of self-sufficiency. It is not like the pastor who gave a message said, for the next few moments, I'm going to say some truly remarkable things about pride. It's not where you kind of wing it in there somehow to where you bring any glory to yourself. It's not the person who says, I'm proud and, or I'm humble and proud of it. It's being begging poor where you are absolutely emptied of a sense of self-sufficiency. Poor in spirit speak to those who realize that they're totally helpless and lost apart from a relationship with God. And so Jesus starts here because the only way that you can enter into the kingdom of heaven is to first realize that you're poor in spirit. Isn't it that place where you came to, wherever it was in your walk, your testimony, when you realized that you had to come to that place where you realized that I am lost. I cannot do it myself. And I need a savior. You were humbled. Self-righteousness, what Jesus was saying is that's not going to make you happy. And that's not going to get you to heaven. And if you can just think of it, he was saying this to the crowds. He was saying this to the disciples. I think the crowds were listening and they could maybe hear some of what was going on. But he was saying this and maybe earshot to where they were hearing this, even though he was specifically addressing it to his disciples. And that would have had a profound impact on what the disciples had been used to hearing and seeing. Because they were living under the conceit of the Pharisees, of Herod. And of the Roman emperor who was holding his sway over the land. And they saw all this arrogance, all this self-righteousness. That's how people led. That's how it was done. And then Jesus brings this radical teaching that you need to be humble in spirit. Luke chapter 18, verses 10 to 14 is a good picture of this. 
Jesus tells this parable that just like knocks a two by four over the concept that it has anything to do with self-righteousness. Actually, backing up to verse nine, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said in verse 14, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Nobody. And we can be absolutely definitive on this. Nobody ever entered into heaven on the basis of pride. It has absolutely nothing to do with it. As a matter of fact, somebody has said the door, the doorway is very low and only people who can crawl come in. Stories told about this man who died and he goes to heaven. And Peter meets him at the pearly gates and Peter says, here's how it works. You need 100 points to make it into heaven. You tell me all the good things you've done, and I'm going to give you a number of points for each item, depending on how good it was. And when you reach 100 points, you get in. The man says, okay. I was married to the same woman for 50 years. Never cheated on her. Not even in my heart. Peter said, that's wonderful. That's worth three points. Three points, he says. Well, I attended church all my life and supported its ministry and tithed and attended every week. Terrific, Peter says. That's worth a point. One point, wow. Okay, how about this? I started a soup kitchen in my city and I worked in a shelter for homeless veterans. Fantastic. That's good for two more points. Two points? At this rate, the only way I get into heaven is by the grace of God. Peter said, come on in. Come on in. Jesus is saying in this passage, start here. This is the starting line. Happiness, blessedness is for the humble. And isn't it true? When we become humble, then in a sense, Christ really does become precious, doesn't he? When you, when you and I see how poor we are, then we really understand how rich he is. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. George Steinbrenner, the Yankee owner, died uh, this week. It was interesting. I don't know when he said the comment, but he said this. He said, you know what? It was of a massive heart attack he died. And he said this some time ago. He said, I don't get heart attacks. I give them. And yet he died of a massive heart attack. James 4, 6 says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Isn't it interesting? God identifies, he just totally identifies with people who beg on the inside. Not those who are self-sufficient. That, has, that person has no attraction to him whatsoever. Think of the story of Jacob in Genesis 32. It's a fascinating story. He, he fights with God all night long. Interestingly enough, God breaks his hip in this battle going on in Genesis 32. But it says after that whole encounter occurred when he was broken of his pride and of his arrogance, that God blessed him there. God made him happy in that humility that Jacob needed to go through. How do you become poor in spirit? If you were to chew on this over lunch or over dinner or think about it during this week and you just say, you know, how does this quality in me, how does it happen? Because Jesus said, blessed are you if you are poor in spirit. So how do I get this quality in me? Well, like they sometimes say when you're watching TV, don't try this at home. In this sense, you cannot do this yourself. You and I are going to, if we go out this door and think, I am going to try and be humble in spirit today, you're going to fail. I've heard that word fail quite a bit. It's a nickname I sometimes hear about myself. You will fail. It doesn't happen by going to some special place and hiding for months or for weeks and being separated and chanting or maybe even being in special clothes. Poor in spirit doesn't happen this way. But how it does happen is, is when you look at Christ and you look at his word and you see what he teaches on the subject Matthew 11:29 he says these amazing words. He says, "Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle." And we'll talk about that next time. But he says this, "And humble in heart." That's the Lord. And you think of the section in scripture, you're probably very well familiar with it in John 13, where in, in verses 14-17 he's washing the disciples' feet. These weren't feet that, you know, had on some nice sandals and never had any, you know, it was just all cement around. This was, this was dirt. These were dirty feet. And the Lord, one by one, washes the disciples' feet. And he says, the reason I'm doing this is so that you'll learn from my example and do it to one another. Man, that's humility. I don't know if you've ever been on the receiving end or on the giving end of literally washing feet. It's not maybe the cultural thing, obviously, that we do here as opposed to when Jesus was uh, living on the earth and even in different parts of the world today. But it's a humbling thing. It's a humbling thing to receive it, let alone to give it. And then you think of the passage of Scripture, which just utterly blows me away when we think about the subject of attitudes, is the attitude that Jesus had in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says these famous words, chapter 2, verses 3 and 5. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another. This is the word of God now. This is truth. He says, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Here we are. Here's here's the... Here's the key thing. Have this attitude. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, 
who, although he existed in the form of God, did not require, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, a lot of times when I'm at work, I probably asked this question 20 times yesterday. Friday when I worked, I felt like 40 times. Thursday wasn't as bad, maybe 20 times. When people would call and I was having to get a description of what a suspect looked like, the question I have to ask all the time is, what did he look like? What did she look like? What was she wearing? What was he wearing? And obviously, the more more specific, the better. If they can tell me, well, first, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, or other. I've had so many people say to me, why does that matter when they call? I never quite understood that. I have to explain that. It's not racial profiling. It's just kind of important. White, black, Hispanic, Asian, or whatever other race it was. What did they look like? What were they wearing? How old were they? Did they have a baseball cap on? Were they clean shaven? Did they have a goatee? Did they have a beard? Color jeans. And I know at this point, sometimes people are just like so exhausted, but we're, we're on the way when we're asking those questions on a hot call. We had a robbery yesterday at a local business. And the better description you get, the better it is, obviously. What was the car? Which way did it go? Did you get a license plate? Two door, four door, blah, 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 blah. You get the point. But when you look at this question, it says, what's the description? What does a man or woman who is poor in spirit look like? What would you say? Well, some of the verses of Scripture have identified exactly that's what we look like. We're humble. We take on the the attitude of a servant like the Lord Jesus Christ. We're dealing in the sense that we're bringing before God the issues of pride, if we have it, or where there's the issues of wanting to boast about our accomplishments and who we are. We're bringing those to his feet. Others who are around us, they recognize us as humble they would say, if they were asked, he's a humble guy, she's a humble guy. They're willing to admit, you're willing to admit your fault. You're willing to admit when you've been wrong. I had to say that to my boss a couple weeks ago over an issue. That I had to go to him and say, you know what? I was wrong in the way that I spoke to you. And you know what? What happens in that situation? You're humbled. But you know what? It, it feels good. Because it's right. Because it's how the Lord was. Not that he had to ever admit wrong, but it's that quality of Jesus coming in and through our very pores and how we behave. How do we measure up to this issue? Well, if you say, I don't measure up at all. Frankly, I don't think I'm very poor in spirit at all. Don't try and measure up yourself. Ask God to do this work in you. Then attitude number two, as we wrap up the next couple of minutes, is this issue of blessed are those who mourn. Jesus said, for they shall be comforted. Bible talks about all different kinds of of mourning. Matter of fact, there's nine different verbs in the Bible describing the issue of mourning. And when he mentions this word, what he's talking about, it's the kind of mourning that you mourn for the dead. It's that type of intensity of mourning. And I can relate to that word because it makes me think of how strong a word that word mourning is. Because when I was last with you folks, I think it was maybe October or November, things were radically different just about six months ago. 
in, seven months ago in my life. Because when we were last here, of course, we were on San Ramon Valley Boulevard. But my dad was here with my mom. And my dad on December 23rd had a massive stroke. And just 35 days later, passed away. And I think of just all the mourning that has taken place over that period of time and continues to this day for all of the family when we think of how quickly it all changed. And yet you think about the grace of God and the kindness of God in that situation because, and you think about attitude and it's been the challenge is how do you deal with this kind of thing when you're grieving and mourning? And, and, and what do you do? And in our situation, it was on the 23rd of December, the day before obviously Christmas Eve, and just wanting to go to bed at 10.30 at night, wanting to put a sock on, couldn't get the sock on right, couldn't get the motor skill right, got to Washington Hospital in Fremont and had a brain bleed that was occurring, and then on January 25th passed away. But in the mercy of God, if he had had that stroke 30 minutes into his sleep, he may not have woke up. And even if he had woke up, he may not have been in a position to wear what I could do with him on the day of uh, the surgery on Christmas Eve shout so that the whole ICU ward could hear it about the need for him to come to Christ where he was still awake. And I wanted to make sure that he could understand. And so he, I said, Dad, can you hear me? And I, the whole ICU ward, I know, heard this conversation because he was on morphine and everything else. And he said, yes, Randy. And I go, squeeze my hand if you can hear me. And he squeezed it. And I said, Dad, you have been putting off for a long time coming to Christ. Do you want to now receive him now, right now, before you go into surgery as your Lord and Savior? I said, if you do, squeeze my hand and say yes. And he did. And I never had another conversation of real substance with him after that. And then went to be with the Lord. The kindness of God. I understand, I understand mourning, but I also understand just God's purposes in it. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy are the sad. That doesn't make sense, does it? That seems contrary to everything we know. Matter of fact, if you think about it, the whole structure of life, it's all about, especially in this state, in this country, it's all about pleasure, isn't it? It's about thrill-seeking. It's about money, and it's about the energy and the time that we put in and the enthusiasm to be happy. I'm, you think about the place about four and a half hours down from here, the happiest place on earth. They want us to go there, spend money, and kind of forget about all our problems. And the idea that you would never see a sign in Disneyland that said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You might mourn over the long lines and the heat and the expenses of things. But they don't, they don't want you to think about that. And yet that's a reality, and Jesus addresses this. And when he talks about blessed are those who mourn, he's talking about it in a specific area. And this is even more shocking. He's talking about it in the area that he wants us to mourn and over the area of sin. He wants us... To come to the place, and it makes sense that it's in that second place right after blessed are the poor in spirit because you're humbled. And then what you're, you're in a place before you became a Christian, and this is obviously true for a Christian, but you're humbled. And now you're at the point where you say, you know what, I, I am broken over my sin. Second Corinthians 7.10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. 
and leaves no regret. God wants us to have an attitude where our sin, if we don't know him, gets to the place to where we are absolutely troubled by it and we're disturbed by it. And we actually come to the place where we're mourning over it. We're grieving over it. Like the very word for when somebody has died. That kind of intensity of grief. David certainly understood this in Psalm 32. You know the story probably that he killed uh, or that he had an affair with Bathsheba. Then he killed her husband, Uriah. And he basically had to cover it up because she got pregnant. And in Psalm 32, David is talking all about this issue. And we we love this psalm because it helps us so to identify with his weakness and his sin. He said, how blessed is he whose sin is forgiven, whose sin is covered. But prior to that, when he didn't do that, in verses 3 and 4, he said this, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Man, when David wouldn't confess his sin and he wasn't mourning over his sin, it was absolutely tearing him up inside. It's been translated, For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality, blood, lymphatic liquids, saliva, life juices was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. But then, of course, he confesses his sin when he's confronted with it. And so you can understand verse 1 then. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is a man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And of course, as time allows, and you can read it, Later, too, Psalm 51, he continues to go on to this subject of how he felt that forgiveness and he knew it. And so what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5 in this verse, blessed are those who mourn, is mourners are happy people because they are the only ones who are forgiven. You know what? If you are here today or if you have family and I trust you, you do and you have friends and I hope you're mixing and rubbing shoulders with people who are lost and don't know the Savior, they do not know that forgiveness. They are still living with that guilt. If you look around you and you see it, whether it's on television or just what you're experiencing in your own life with people that you know and love, they are experiencing and the way they're dealing with the guilt of their sin is through addictions, whatever they are. They're dealing with it through anger, depression. John 10.10, we all know that I came that you might have life, but remember the verse, just the part just prior to the B part in John 10, that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And that's what he's doing in lives. That's what he was doing in our lives before we knew him. And then we experienced that forgiveness. Interestingly enough, and get this before we wrap up here, that happiness doesn't come from mourning in and of itself. It comes in response to to God's response to it. That's why we can be happy. There's nothing to be grotesque about, about or being strange here today that we can all say, I'm, just, I'm a happy mourner. Jesus said, be happy. And so I'm mourning. It comes in God's response to it. That's why we can experience, as he says, for they shall be comforted. What a comfort, isn't it, to know that you 
that as you were celebrating this morning the, the Lord's Supper, that the judgment, as Taylor was singing, the judgment for your sin and the sin that I have committed and will sadly still commit has been dealt with on the cross? Isn't that awesome news? Amen? Amen. And, and, and we're comforted by that. First John 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And we have that comfort of Scripture that he'll forgive us. Again, the description, what does he or she look like who is a mourner? Two things real quickly. Not only in our own lives do we need to see sin as it really is. We need to see it for what it costs the Savior. We need to stop excusing it. We need to stop blaming it on others. We, we need to address it. And honestly, before God, because he loves us so much, as Taylor was singing, in the whole context of that, as, our, as a judge who now has exchanged the, the sentence and we've been pronounced not guilty, we need to be honest with him. We, we need to read the Sermon on the Mount and these first two passages and, and not think, oh, this is just a nice, solitary, or a nice, wonderful, calming passage of Scripture, but really see what the intensity and the power of if we want to obey what Jesus said, if you want to be blessed, if you want to be happy, then you need to come to a place to where you see your sin and be willing to deal with it. And secondly, we need to be in a place where we're willing to, we, we see the world around us. And in a sense, when you watch the news, I know some people say, I don't watch the news. It just is too depressing. Well, I understand that. I, I understand what people are saying. But we need to not be tuned out to understand there's lost folk all around us. And what's going on in the world is an indication of lostness, of people who are struggling in their sin. We can't hide and go in the house and close the blinds and just seclude ourselves from that. We need to be with those and mourn over their sin and be wanting to talk to them about the Savior. It's been said that the Beatitudes contain the dynamite of the Holy Spirit. And I love this. And they explode when the circumstances of our lives cause them to do so. When the Spirit of God reminds us, as He will this week, of these two attitudes, being poor in spirit and mourning over sin, we're going to be faced, brothers and sisters, with a choice. It could happen as early as 30 minutes from now. The exciting thing is, it's not for the half-hearted, the Sermon on the Mount. We'll have to ask ourselves, am I willing to accept the tremendous spiritual upheaval that will be produced in our situation if we obey his words? Jesus said, will say, blessed are we if we do. Wrapping up on attitudes... There's a story about these four senior citizens who are golfing. And they hit the course with a waning enthusiasm for the sport. These hills are getting steeper as the years go by, one complained. These fairways seem to be getting longer, too, wheezed a second. And somehow the sand traps seem to be getting bigger than I remember them, said the third. Hearing just about enough from his buddies, the oldest and the wisest of the four, at 87, piped up, oh, my friends, just be thankful we're still on the side of, this side of the grass. 
God still has us on this side of the grass in order to bring him glory. If we're serious and we're humbly, we humbly go before God and say, help me live out what it means to be poor in spirit and to mourn over sin in my life and even in the lives of others, then we're going to have a radical impact for his sake, for Jesus' sake. Amen? Lord, we want to thank you for the awesome power of your teaching. We thank you for your authority, and we acknowledge you as God today who not only taught these wonderful truths, but you lived them out. And so, Father, I just pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here today that as we face whatever you have in our lives for this coming week, that, Lord, we'll know and be remembering that we cannot do any of this in our own strength, but we need your spirit who you've given us to be the kind of people you want us to be. God, I pray that we will understand and appreciate that uh, you delight in in humility. uh, You give grace to the humble. And I pray that you will, as you only know how, gently remind us and show us where we need to break, where this quality, where this fruit of humility is not shining in our lives. And I pray, Father, too, that as we are aware of it as you bring it to us that we'll mourn over it and we'll want to make it right with you and with others and that you'll just reflect your beauty in our lives. We ask you to bless us for the rest of this day. We thank you for all your goodness to us. We thank you for your love to us and we thank you just even for how we, what we heard in song as well today. We bless your name in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.